Hi, it's Jim Shokin, host of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Today we're sitting down with Ryan Estrada, creator. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. All right. Hi. Uh, my name is Ryan Estrada. Uh, I'm a, I make so many things. I'm a cartoonist. Uh, I've been working for many, many years. I've got a book coming out called Band Book Club. People know me for uh, Learn to Read Korean in 15 Minutes. Uh, I've got another book coming out in August called Student Ambassador, The Missing Dragon. Both uh, those for, are from Iron Circus Comics. And uh, if I had started listing all the things I've done, the podcast would be over. So I make a lot. Yeah, I sort of noticed that. So I guess starting in no particular direction, uh, what's Band Books about? Uh, Band Book Club is a true story about my wife growing up in Korea in the 1980s under basically a dictatorship, and she accidentally joined uh, what she thought was just a book club to like do extra study after class, and then found out they were reading banned books and like fighting fascism and learning to make Molotov cocktails, and kind of got drawn into this world of of how to like remove a dictator from power. Okay. So how much fun? I mean, that's got to be something that's got to be fun to write with. It was a little bit terrifying. Yeah, I mean, you know, working with my my wife uh, is kind of a a dream, like getting to collaborate with someone that I care about and just learn things. Like, I had no idea any of this was a thing until, like, right before we started working on this book. She just – it was so normal to her. She never thought to mention it. But then we got to travel all over Korea and meet, like, her old fascist fighting friends and uh, visit all the places where she uh, did all of this. And it was just kind of an adventure that – ended in a book oh that i can just imagine you're basically seeing all this stuff and you're basically going wait you did what <laughs> yeah she like i said we'd we'd known each other for over a decade and uh been married for years and she's just like you know oh, yeah back when i was in the band book club and i got interrogated by the kcia i'm like wait who interrogated you what why and it, it yeah i learned some things about my wife boy howdy i'll bet what actually got you into doing comics and that sort of thing? Well, the thing is, I I was making comics since before I can remember. Like I, my my mother talks about like you know as a baby trying to make comics, and I was submitting newspaper uh, comics uh, to papers when I was six years old. So it's just always been the thing that I wanted to do, and who knows how it started because I can't remember that far back. Right. Uh, the obvious, any major inspirations? Um, like when I was early on, of course, I was into, you know, since I was pitching in newspapers, I was into like Garfield, uh, like Popeye and all that, which is amazing that like in this past year, I actually got to work on official Garfield and Popeye projects. Um, but like as a kid, I had like the whole basically shrine of like every single Garfield book and all the dolls and figurines. And later I got into uh, Looney Tunes and I was obsessed with Chuck Jones. Um, And now it's like a a lot of like independent comics that I'm obsessed with. Like one of the the early graphic novels that I was super into was Bone. Uh, That's inspired a lot of my work. And I just, but mostly I like to, in the things that I write, I like to take experience uh, from, my real like adventures around the world and people that I've met and places that I've traveled. Cause I've, I've lived in like dozen, well over a dozen countries and uh, traveled through many other countries. Uh, and just for many, many years, I, I lived in a new country for uh, every year for a long time and just 
had so many experiences that I want to not necessarily that all of my comics are nonfiction about these different places and cultures and people, but I learned so much about the way the world works that I try to incorporate that in my comics, whether it's uh, fiction or nonfiction. Right. In fact, uh, when you start departing from it, it sort of gets weird as well. I was like Broken Telephone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Broken Telephone is uh, a non or it's a fictional comic about uh, um, like basic crimes happening all over the world that are kind of uh, kind of as you read, you figure out how they're connected. But that's another one of those things where I traveled to so many places that I wanted each story to take place in a different country with a, with completely different people. And the idea is that. Uh, everyone's the hero of their own story. So everyone's doing something, uh, you know, everyone's doing something they think is, is good, but it's creating problems for someone else who thinks they're the bad guy and things get worse and worse. And it, you know, a lot of that came from trouble I got into around the world and, uh, you know, situations I was involved in, but also a lot of research into like weird ways to do crimes you have a personal favorite weird crime or a personal favorite weird crime? Well, my personal favorite weird crime that I've committed that I put into broken telephone was that I figured out how to hack the firewall of Citibank. And I did. Uh, but I only did it to read comics at work when I was supposed to be working and, uh, and to flirt with uh, my girlfriend at the time who was, uh, after I left the, the call center that I was working at, uh, I, I hacked into it so I could talk to her on her computer. Hacker for love. There are worse things yeah. to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, they had terrible security, so I'm not exactly a hacker. I just figured out their their very large weakness in that they had um, uh, they 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 needed to block any external websites because every computer has everyone's social security number. But in order to use their own websites, they allowed any website that started with the letter C I T I. So I just uh, made citi.ryanestrada.com and could do whatever I wanted. That's obviously a hack. I think they hope they've filled since then. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, that, that, that call center doesn't cover uh, Citibank anymore. So hopefully the other call centers that are doing it have better security. That, of course, led into uh, – is it, yeah, there's still a Rashomon thing going with that, right? Yeah, yeah, it's be- – yeah, it's basically uh, all the stories are kind of happening at the same time, and uh, you know everybody thinks everyone else is the bad guy, but it turns out they are in in some weird way. Right, and that of course led into Big Data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Big Data was uh, an audio drama. It was kind of me trying to mix things up and try a new format, uh, and it's it's kind of a, a spinoff in the it's it. It's a standalone story, but has some crossover characters with uh, um, Broken Telephone. But yeah, Big Data was this huge. It, it was intended to be this little like, oh, I've been a big comic project. I'll I'll do something fun on a weekend with my friends. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it became the biggest thing I've ever done. I think there was almost a hundred actors involved and like people that did their first acting job, people that like have Emmys or were nominated for Oscars, and it's it's a huge mix of people. That would be all sorts of awesome to play around with. It was it was definitely fun, uh, you know, being able to improvise and act with all these different people and use it to tell a story. When it comes to improvisation, 
you know, something obviously comes up a lot when you start dealing with acting. How much of it was actually based off the script and how much of it was just simply going way into left field? Well, basically, the way I edited Big Data was um, when we got in the studio, we had our scripts. The first run, we just – I. The first run is the one you never use because everyone's a little awkward. And so you just you do it based on the script, and then I'll give some notes. And then uh, we'll – no, actually, the, the second one I do is I'll do the extreme take where I'm like, whatever your, your highest emotion was in the scene, like if you were the most angry or the most sad, like start there and then try and make it as extreme as possible. And that just kind of lo- I don't I I sometimes I use bits and pieces of that, but it's mostly just to loosen people up and get them like screaming and not feel awkward about being loud. And then the third take is I'm like, let's do the script again. Now that you've gotten notes and you've uh, you've practiced your emotions, uh, that's usually the one I use the most of. And then the last one I say, okay, my notes, I gave you my script, you did it, we got it, we're fine. Now just go nuts, go off script, do whatever you want. Scream if you want to, cry if you want to, go off on a 20-minute tangent about potatoes if you want to. I don't care. And then they have fun with it and go wild. And I actually end up ended up using a lot of that in Big Data. And that's one of the reasons – one of the, the things I wish I could change about Big Data is that, like, I, I, I loved everything so much that I put it all in. So I'd, like, have all of my original script and put in all the uh, the – improvisation so the episodes just got very very long they were all intended to be like 30 minutes but some of them were like an hour and a half just because i i loved all the improv so much so i think it's it's kind of a mix of of uh all of it cool definitely sound like something would be fun to try just i mean like sort of like the varies in terms of how much improv is allowed in different types of scripts mm-hmm yeah, I'm I'm always when I work with collaborators, you know, I there's no use in working with someone if you don't want what they can bring to the table. So it's the same with acting as it is like with comics. Uh when I work with an artist, if I write a script, I'm more than happy for them to like if they have an idea find a way to make it their own. I don't I, I don't want to be the kind of writer that's like, "No, this is what I want. This is what I pictured. You have to like take what's in my head and put it on paper. Like if I want that, I'll draw it myself." Uh, it, I, I love working with people who can bring something new and make something better and make something unique in a way that I couldn't. Right. Yeah, it's definitely something, I mean, with, especially considering you have so many, when you, especially when you start dealing with comics, you start dealing with situations where you've got a lot of artists that are 50-50. Sometimes they don't want to deal with the writing whatsoever. Sometimes they want to have a little bit of input into it. Yeah, it's always a conversation I have with artists that I work with up front. Like, what, what, how do you prefer to work? Like, I'm happy to work either way. Um, even when I'm, when I'm writing scripts, even before I finish the script, I'll ask them, you know, do you prefer the type of script where I tell you in this panel, this person does this, their hand goes here, uh, then the second panel, they turn this way and, you know, or, or I can just say on page one, this is what happens. And then you can figure out how to break it up. You can figure out what they're doing. And some people like one way, some people like the other. I just want to give the the artist what works best for them. When it comes to first approaching an artist, what's the best approach right off the bat? I mean, to basically show that you can actually break it down yourself or to basically make it as uh, general as possible? Uh like I said, it, it depends on what, what they want. Like the, the first thing I do when approaching an artist is just 
kind of give them the information they need to know that it's a, a real project. Like they're, I, I can find, I can get a way to pay them for it. Um, make sure that they're compensated for the work and it's going to, you know, like it's, it's not just a thing that I'm going to pop on my website and it's never going to make any money. Cause I, I don't want to bring someone on. Like I said, that's something I can do myself if I'm just doing something to put on online. But, uh, when I bring them on, I'm like, it, I want to collaborate on this. I want to make sure it's what's what you're comfortable with. So that's a conversation we have and how, how they prefer to work. And then I adapt my approach to their style. Okay. Just like, I'm, remember, I'm more of a writer type. Um, when it comes to some of the stuff that the writers do, how general can you get with them? Just a straight, this is a big fight, this needs to happen, you know, Marvel school, or does it have to be like, direction to it? Yeah, well, like, um, like, for, like the loosest I, I get, and, you know, people are still free to like change things around and they do is just, I'll, I'll write the script. Like it's a TV script or a movie script. Uh, and I, I'm not breaking down panels or anything. I just make sure this much can like, I just make sure that each page has a complete thought. Like it feels like a, a sentence. Uh, it's not stopping in the middle of an action or in the middle of a sentence. And then, uh, you know, just the dialogue of the characters, a general description of what's going on, and then I let them figure out how that equals a page. And even still, a lot of times I'll write the script like that, and maybe it'll be like 145 pages, but I'll tell the publisher it's a 150-page script so that they have five pages to play with. If they if they feel like, if they get into something, they're like, oh, I want to do a little bit of something here. I want to make this panel, uh, you know, a full-page uh, splash panel, or... Um, I have an idea for like some physical comedy that can happen in the background. So I want some room for that. And I just let them have the chance to play. Um, and then the, the tightest that I'll get is like I said, I'll just say, uh, uh, sometimes I'll even do thumbnails of like, this is how the panels are laid out. This is what, what everything does. This is, you know, which word balloons are broken up. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a range. Okay. And because I know you also do the art yourself, obviously. Um, What's a, what kind of information would you say a writer would need to have in order to become a better working, being able to work with an artist? Would they need some uh, instruction and illustration themselves? or? I think it's good to have practiced making a comic, even if it's terrible. Uh, I would suggest to any writer that's, uh, even if you never plan on drawing a comic, do a 24-hour comic. Uh, or 12-hour comic, whatever. If people aren't familiar with that, 24-hour comic is where you have 24 hours to make a 24-page book. And you can do I've, – I've done uh, 12, a lot of 12-hour comics, and I've also gone as far as doing a 168-hour comic where I was doing a page per hour for a week. Um, and it's, it's something you never have to show anyone. It's just after a day, you have the experience of making something. And just you see how it feels. You see how much you can fit. Uh, like one of the biggest mistakes I see writers making is having more than one action happen in a panel. Um, I've had people write comics for me where they say the person in panel one, the person says this uh, and then puts the glass down and says this. And I'm like, that's physically impossible to draw. I In the panel, he's either holding the cup or he's putting it down. If you put both of them, that's two panels. Or like they'll say, I, I, the, the funniest one was when I was doing custom comics, I had this person say, uh, you know, they, they wrote me this, like, basically they were ordering one page and then they, they, they submitted the script that was like 30 pages long. And I'm like, yeah, that can't fit on a page. Like this is, 
and they didn't understand it. So I'm just like, okay, you have like 40 panels. We can fit five panels on a page. So they just change it to be like, okay, in panel one, this character says this, and then a dinosaur uh, jumps through the door, and they drive away, and then they go up a mountain. And I'm like, that's you can't draw that in one picture. Yeah, that's that one action. Yeah, that one action to a panel gets a lot of people right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, and that's the kind of thing that if you've sat down, like even if you're drawing a stick figure comic. You just want to see how it feels to match images and words on a page. Uh, so it's good to have done it. Even if it's something that you're so embarrassed by, you will never, ever show it to anyone. It's just something that an experience you've had that then when you're writing something for someone else, you're like, oh, yeah, when I did that, this was a little difficult. Or uh, you realize, like, oh, that I, I have way too much dialogue in this panel because, like, if you – if you put all this in there, it's gonna, it, you know, I, I, I used to tell people, uh, other writers, like when you're writing a comic, each word balloon should have about a tweet in it. Uh, now t- Twitter has doubled their characters. It used to be 140 characters. I'd say like, I try to keep it to about 140 unless there's a reason for it. There are panels I've done where someone gives a long monologue and I didn't break up the monologue because you want visually to show that someone's talking too much, but if you break that rule, it should be for a reason and you should know that uh, there is a reason for it and that people probably aren't going to read that whole monologue. And that's the kind of thing that writers kind of got to, you kind of got to get a feel for. It's not like there's specific rules that no one can break. It's just, it, no, having made a comic, you know what works and what doesn't. Yeah, it's the standard basically, you just do what feels comfortable and make sure it makes sense type of deal. Mm hmm. When it comes to dialogue, what are some of the big problems you you tend to have with it? Uh, That I have as a a writer with dialogue? What do you mean? When you start writing dialogue for your comics, what are some of the problems you've had or had that have come up? For me, writing dialogue is is my favorite part. But the the issue that I always have is uh, something that always I have to fix in a second draft is that everyone always just sounds like me. Like, uh, there's a, a certain type of dialogue that I enjoy writing, uh, and it's easy to make every character sound like that, but you want to give everyone their own personality, their own style, and if everyone's talking the same way to one another, it just sounds like me having a conversation with myself. So you want to make uh, everyone have their own little unique mannerisms, and maybe some people are soft-spoken, some people are very verbose, and uh, just... Find a way to make everyone feel different. Do you, is there any particular style you use to do that yourself, or do you just simply have to tweak it and tweak it and from draft to draft? Uh, I think the the main thing is to get away from the computer for a second and not just be like you know when you're when you're writing the script, it's one thing, but you know you're, you're just thinking about words on a page. But then kind of st- step away from it, go for a walk, ride a bike or something, and then just kind of picture that same conversation again in your head where you're not sitting down and being like, oh, this word play is good. Oh, if I put this word after – like stop trying to be witty and just picture in your head what it would sound like if two people were actually talking. And then like you realize that like this whole two-paragraph thing full of witty uh, um, puns and, and word play is – you know feel so much more real if someone just goes yeah like what one of my favorite moments in uh one of my favorite bits of dialogue in the world 
I'm gonna I talk about this a lot, but I'm gonna talk about Goofy movie for a second. Have you ever seen a Goofy movie? Yeah, awesome show. Greatest movie ever made. Uh, so there's a moment where Pete and Goofy are in the hot tub, and Pete's like basically jealous that like Goofy's son loves him, and his doesn't. And then uh, Goofy says, uh, Max may not be all the things that you think a son should be, but he loves me. And then Pete like gets really offended and goes, hey, my son respects me. And the greatest bit of dialogue ever is just Goofy going, yeah. It's just such a burn. It's like, yeah, he's like, it's literally the nicest character in like the world, Goofy, saying, yeah, but he doesn't love you. But he doesn't have to say that. He just He gets his look and goes, yeah. And it's such a burn for like a children's Disney movie. It's such a, a way to say your son does not love you. But like every time I hear that, I'm like, oh, and I'm, I know like if I were trying to write that script, I'd be like, it would be a monologue about like how uh, re- the difference between love and respect and all of this. You don't need it. And there's the, there are places where you can do monologues. You can be witty. But Goofy's not that character. He doesn't give monologues. He just has his emotions, and you can you can feel what he's thinking without having to write it down. Yeah, that is definitely – I mean, when they did the Goof Troop series, that was actually one of the hallmarks of that particular show. Was they just had a lot of fun with uh, Goofy and Max just basically being who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, and they talk very different. Their, di- their dialogue is very different. Um, going back to some of the other stuff you've done, notice you had a YouTube series where you go out and explore the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a long, long time ago. That was in the early days of YouTube. I started that before Google even owned YouTube and before, uh, before you could upload anything larger than a postage stamp. Like I forget what the, the, um, uh, the size was back then, but it was like probably 200 by 400 <laughs> pixels or something. Uh, but yeah, I used to have a show called Expeditions where people would give me missions and I'd go out and solve them. And I uh, like, uh, let's see, I, I kissed a rat. I climbed Kilimanjaro. Uh, I, I don't remember all the episodes. I went skinny dipping with, uh, piranhas once. Just all kinds of weird stuff. Kind of what I bring that up is because part of that's obviously influenced a lot of your writing because you have a lot of experience to draw upon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've just, I've always, I've, ever since I finished college, uh, I just have been traveling uh, for a long time. I moved to a new country every year, and I, I tend to go places without researching. And I've just gotten into a lot of trouble doing that. And luckily, I'm, I'm privileged enough that, like, everything I've done has turned out okay and just given me stories re- rather than tragedy. But, uh, yeah, I've I've had some, some wild times thrown from a train i've been uh uh stranded places lost places um all all that fun stuff almost i got a uh someone tried to mug me once and it was uh, lots of fun yeah how's that change your how how that would change your perspective if you instead of going out and exploring the world you just stayed at home would that think that would have changed how your writing style is yeah, I mean, you can definitely see just by looking at the work I did before and after, like, uh, the first comic I got published was about an orange cat who's too lazy to chase mice. 
So I was bas- that basically proves that my only reference point for I mean I was also 15 at the time, but my only reference at the time was comics. Like I could only make comics based on what I experienced in other comics. And uh you know I I had things that felt very much like the Simpsons. I'd made things that felt very much like just other stuff that I'd seen. Um but now my comics are very very weird because I have led a very weird life and had experiences no one else has. And whether, you know, sometimes I make just nonfiction comics about the weird stuff I've seen, but sometimes it's just like I apply the feeling that I had or the type of experience that I had and give that to a fictional character. And it's, it's made my writing much more unique uh, and unique to me and in the kind of, and then I'm writing the kind of thing that no one else could, as opposed to writing a bad interpretation of something that's already been done. Right. Speaking of bad interpretations, how how often have you had a little bit of fun with just basically some sort of miscommunication happening between two different people in terms of because of the language issues? Um, yeah, I mean that's what happens. You know, when I, like I said, I moved to a new country every year for uh, over a decade, and you know it's 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 mostly uh, me being the one that doesn't know the local language or like. Uh, and I, I travel so much that sometimes I'll, uh, like when I move to a new country, I've been here in Korea for a while, so it hasn't been an issue for a bit, but like I moved from Mexico to Korea and I just like, my, my brain doesn't have like, you know, here's the container for Korean, here's the container for Spanish, here's the container for English. I just, there's the English section and then the non-English section. So like I, I forget what words are, uh, um, which language? So, like, when I first came to Korea after Mexico, I'd be like, uh, uh, don't they ask And I'm, oh, no, wait, that's half Spanish, half Korean. And I'd be like, okay, uh, uh, banyos adi? No, I just switched it. And I'm like, I, I, every word in the sentence is from a different language. So it's, it's mostly me being confused as opposed to me bumping into other people that are creating a problem. Cause it's, it, the places I travel, people are very good at communication and, and uh, finding ways to communicate with, with me while I'm being a dummy. Does basically becoming part of the culture help when it comes to learning a language or dealing with a language, or is it just something you have to learn artificially? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, when I move to a place, I, I learn all the things that are applicable to, you know, I can, I can go to a supermarket, I can get food, I can order a restaurant, I can give directions in a taxi, stuff like that. But the, for me, learning a language is really hard work, and I think it's just I I do, I, I really want to make my own series of language books one day because they're like I guess I don't know if if my brain works differently from everyone else, but like the way that language books are set up is completely useless to me, and like I I wish there were something that were better at teaching it, um, and like I I yeah I I have a lot of difficulty with it, and especially during that period I was moving so much, just trying to learn so many different languages at different words and different grammar structures. It's always been uh, harder for me. Um, now, of course, people, a lot of people around the world assume I speak Korean very well because uh, my comic Learn to Read Korean in 15 Minutes went super viral. Like hundreds of millions of people have learned to read uh, Hangul uh, with it. Um, but I and, I and I can read Hangul. It's, it's easier than reading English uh, uh, for me. But that doesn't mean I, I can read it phonetically. That doesn't mean I know what the words mean. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of the big problems, I, I know I love using this word way too much, uh, the problem is a lot of language books aren't very organic. They basically show you how to, they break it down like it's one of the uh, romance language, where it's basically, this is the formal way to conjugate verbs, this sort of thing, and this is the stuff you need to learn. But it's more of a, you know, more of an English thing, where you're trying to basically learn the language, but they're trying to show you all the breakdown, and they're not necessarily showing you how how useful it really is. Yeah, well, I mean, the the main thing that annoys me, every time I've opened any language book, the very first thing they teach you is to ask, how are you? And I'm like, I'm not going to understand the answer. <laughs> why Why are you having throwing me into a situation I can't finish? Uh, and, and, like, and then they just teach you sentences that, like, I can only use in that specific context, and I just memorize, memorizing the sentences. Like, the, the one that... I, I was working on one for a long time, but I realized how big a project it was. I hope I can finish it one day. But, like, the way mine works is sentence structures. Like, there's a whole chapter called I Am. Uh, so it's just you can learn to say, I am Ryan. Great. You learn one thing. Now you can also use that to say, I am American. I am 39 years old. I am hungry. I am, uh, you know, it, it go through all the things you can use that for so you can practice that sentence and know how to, make your own sentences rather than just memorizing something from a book. And then from that, okay, you learn that. Now let's learn he is, she is, they are, we are. And you can use all of the same things you already learned and add to it. So that, that that's what I want to make, but it's a, it's a big project. Yeah. And of course my backup is, man, you'd hate French. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's really fun about French is you don't, not everything is everything you say I am in English has like three or four different ways of saying it in French. Mm -hmm. Like you don't say I'm hungry, you say I have hunger. That sort of yeah. So Yeah, some languages get really weird really quick. Yeah, and that's the other thing that I would do in a language book is uh you're not a fluent speaker. You're not gonna sound like and you don't want to trick people into thinking you're a fluent speaker when you're not. So I, I would be like, here is the most basic, easy to remember way you can say all of these things. Like, you know, like I said, the first thing I would teach is, you know, I am Ryan, Nanun Ryan Imnida, which is not how a Korean would say it. They would say Jeirumun Ryan Imnida, which is my name is, but I am still works. And if you learn that and then you're able to communicate with that, then you can add in the extra bit that can help you uh, do it. But I, 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 I'm always advocating for language teaching that gives you the ability to communicate and practice something on your own before you start trying to sound fluent. Yeah. And nice, and nice pointing out some languages tend to get a little bit weird with that one. Mm -hmm. uh, going back to French for a sec, uh, when you say I am, okay, if I was going to I am Jameis, in French you'd actually be saying I, I call myself Jameis. Yeah. So... Like you said, it's a weird language. Mm -hmm. Language is always weird. It's a it's a thing that um, that human beings made up to be able to get the things inside their brain in other people's brains. It's always going to be weird, and sometimes very squishy. Um, which how often do you have to translate your books, or do you? Um, not often. Like a band book club. Uh, is getting a release in both English and Korean. And the nice thing about that is uh, my wife got to translate her own story. Um, 
And uh, she, she's translated a, a few of my books in, in the past for selling at conventions here. But this was like her first big, uh, you know, translation job. I don't know if you know, even call it a translation because it, it is her story. Like she told it to me. I I transcribed it into comic format and then she's trans- transcribing it back into Korean. Um, but I haven't had a lot of other translations besides that and the ones she's done for me of like smaller things. Right. I just got curious because a lot of times one of the problems a lot of people have when it comes to translating from one language to another is they also have to deal with the cultural issues from one to the other. Yeah, that was an issue in in band book club where like she had come to me confused by like puns and idioms. And I'd be like, yeah, you just got to take it out. Think of another joke. It doesn't work in in Korean. Um, So, yeah, it's it's, you know, uh, translation is not just directly like this word means this. It's, it's a lot of it is uh, it's like poetry, you know, trying to figure out these, these two languages have very different ways of communicating. How do I reflect the ideas and thoughts that are coming out about here and not just word by word, you know, replace, you know, find and replace. Yeah. It's always going to be, it's always going to be confusing, especially with puns because they're so language based. Mm-hmm. And of course, like you pointed out, there is some issues when it comes to translating one culture to another. I mean, it'd be sort of fun to. I mean, one of the biggest problems a lot of people have with manga, for example, is translating Japanese culture over to American culture. Yeah, and that was a big thing that changed. Where early on, you know, they'd be like, "We can't have any Japanese culture in this book," and they'd be like, "Let's eat some donuts," and you're like, "They're not." they're not eating donuts. It's ramen. It's ramen. Like, what are you doing? Whereas now it's like, people are allowed to know that ramen exists. Like characters can eat noodles. It's fine. You don't have to take out all the culture. Just if there's culture that people might not know, add like a couple words of context. And, you know, it's, it's a a thing to always think about. Like, you know, you don't want to, you know, there's a big difference between localization and translation. Like you don't need to make it take place in America. Uh, or take place wherever it's being translated to, just uh, make sure that people can understand it. So, other than that, I mean, we're going to have go a little bit more serious here in a moment, but um, any actual advice for when it comes to writing or drawing for people? Uh, yeah, my advice for writing is uh, simply to just allow yourself to be weird. Write the things that only you can write. Uh, don't worry about what's popular. Don't be like, this is a little too weird. People aren't going to like it. Or like the things that are popular now are written like this. So I better change this and make it a, a more uh, mainstream kind of thing. Because the things you make that, you know, if you, if you try to be like Superman's popular or write something similar to Superman or stranger things is popular. Now I'll try to make something like stranger things. Like it's just going to be a pale imitation of a thing that people would be like, I'll just read the original. But if you make something so weird that only you can write, then people can't find anything like that anywhere else. And even if everyone isn't going to be into it, the people that are into it are going to be really into it because you're, you're serving them something they can't find anywhere else that maybe they've, they've craved without even knowing it. And personally for me, all of the things that I've made that were too weird that like uh, for for years I was trying to get off the ground and they were rejected by every 
mainstream publisher and every literary agent uh, are now the things that since I just made them myself and put them online, like I'm starting to get attention for uh, years later and like uh, getting TV offers and like secret deals and like uh, book deals and stuff uh, based on this weird, weird stuff just because people are like, Oh, this is, this is interesting. This is something I've never seen before. So just be weird, whether you're writing, you're drawing, just do the thing that only you can do because then you have no competition. Definitely. I mean, yeah, just, that's just the way it should go. Mm-hmm. Now he going back to the writing dialogue. Um, when you actually start writing your own stuff, how much of that, the, how much of the writing process do you go when it comes to actually doing the dialogue? I mean, do you, like you said, do you continually tweak it or do you just simply, you know, improv pretty much right off the bat or? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I, um, I have a very weird way of writing in that typically I don't sit down to write something until like years into the process. Uh, I mostly just think about stuff. And I have like hundreds of projects in the back of my mind that I, I want to make one day. And every time I like get on a bus or I'm riding a bike, it's just kind of like pulling a DVD off the shelf. Like, oh, yeah, I remember that project. Let me think about that for a bit. And I'll just watch it in my head like I'm watching a movie. And every time it's slightly different, uh, you know, that I, I forget some parts and I, I create new things. A new character comes in and it kind of it's. It's just editing just naturally happens because the parts that were not memorable enough to come back to me disappear from my mind. And um, I don't write anything down yet. Uh, I just think about it. And then eventually I watch it so many times that it kind of like, you know, it starts to feel like a real thing. And I, I feel like I've watched a movie that no one else has. And then for me, sitting down to type it is basically like adapting a movie that, uh, no one but me has ever seen into a script. Uh, and so that's kind of how I do it. And then I, I do a draft and I, I kind of wait a little bit and then read it and see how it feels. And then that's where the tweaking comes in. Um, that's when they're like, uh, no, this character sounds too stiff. This character, you know, just kind of, um, it, you know, I, I go through a lot of drafts. Uh, sometimes I'll have other people read it and give me advice, but it's a, I typically work on things for a, a long, long time before they start to actually come out and become a thing that other people can see. Cool. Do you actually have a notebook on this, or do you just simply try to keep everything in your head? I mean, when I when I decide, like, this project is one I'm going to actually start working on instead of just thinking about, then I'll start taking notes. Um, and I'll I, – if I look at back at my old notes on projects, like, they look like – like something you'd see at the beginning of like seven or something like just look like a, a deranged mind wrote crazy things. Um, but yeah, I, when I, when I decide this is the book I'm going to do, I'll like try and outline, okay, this is what happened in my head. This is where this character comes in. And sometimes like when you do something like that, there's like bits of dream logic where they don't really totally fit together and make sense. And you kind of have to figure that out and, that's where the the notes come in, and then writing bits of dialogue, and then when you, once I sit down to type it, then it's all in the in the script, and um, and all the tweaking happens there. And I guess the obligatory: Are you a pantser or a plotter? Uh, I yeah. Lately, don't ask. <laughs> yeah, I I tend to be 
like I, like I said, in that long process, at the very beginning, it's just wild. Anything can happen. And then, uh, so I guess that's, that's my pantser stage. But then eventually, uh, you know, once I start thinking about a lot, then I'm like, well, how does this work? How does this work? And it just, then that's when I start like putting all the pieces together. But I, I never sit down and, and start writing something until I know every bit of plot that's going to happen and how it's going to fit together. So it's like I, I, I allow myself that time to just go, get weird and go wild when nothing's going down on paper. But then once it's becoming a thing, then I, I already know here's a sequence of events, here's how the characters interact and, and all of that. Okay. Yeah, I just got curious because a lot of times I'm pretty, I'm pretty much the plotter type. I pretty much outline everything. Mm-hmm. So I'll have like, you know, I'll have an outline of everything that's going on. I'll have the emotional weight for that particular scene. And then when I start mixing in with the subplots and the running gags and all that, I'll start just basically mixing in all based on the emotional weight, and it gets all sorts of complicated really quick. So, Yeah, with, with mine, it's always like there are certain scenes, when I'm picturing these things in my head, there are certain scenes that I know are important and certain characters that I know are important, but I don't quite know how they fit together yet. And I just kind of, that's when I'm kind of thinking about the, the script. And then there's always a moment where I realize like these two things that I've been thinking about, I get how they fit together and I get how they emotionally tie one another to like complete a plot and bring it to a climax. And that's like the, the best feeling in the world is when that happens. Right. Yeah. I definitely appreciate that. (laughs) Does not help. I'm right in the middle of Nano this month. So, (laughs) um, and you want to go a little bit on Student Ambassador? Yeah, Student Ambassador is coming out in uh, August. That's another one of those books that has been in my mind for a long, long time. Uh, I myself was a student ambassador to Australia back in, I think, 1996, 1997, something like that. And uh, um, it just, I mean, it, it basically was like a package tour, but Student Ambassador was always like, I had dreamed of making a story about like what I wished it had been like if it were like this crazy adventure and I, I worked on it for years and years. I started a web comic version of it that I, um, I wasn't that happy with. So I, I kind of redeveloped it. I pitched it all over to all these different agents and all these different publishers. No one was into it. And so I shelved it for a while, but I never stopped thinking about it. And then finally, uh, iron circus, uh, was interested. I teamed up with an artist named extra Aeneas from Mexico that, um, we we kind of redeveloped it and it's it's basically uh you know like a a, a middle grade uh kids adventure book about like this little mexican american boy that uh gets to travel the world and have adventures there's a little bit of like da vinci code like puzzle solving but like instead of um just like making a fake code like they're they're learning to read Korean. Uh as I mentioned I made that comment before but I incorporated some of that in there and using real landmarks to uh, you know, create mysteries and just made a tried to make a really really fun adventure story for kids, kind of like in the in the vein of like, you know, Tintin stories or or something like that. Um, uh, and so I yeah I'm, I'm really excited that that's finally coming out, which is something that I've worked on since I was in high school, uh, and dreamed of making and it and it's finally a real thing. Cool. All right. Um, I'll get you any final thoughts. 
yeah, my final thought is uh, thank you so much for having me. I love making comics. I love making weird things. Uh, and I hope people will, will check them out. Uh, Band Book Club comes out next month in May. Uh, it was supposed to come out sooner, but, you know, there's this virus going around. Uh, Student Ambassador comes out in August, and I've got so many other things coming out. Uh, I got uh, Occulted is a graphic novel about my friend that grew up in a cult uh, that's coming out next year. Uh, I've got a couple of kids' books coming out from Scholastic. But the only thing you need to know is that you can go to ryanestrada.com. It's all there. Links to everything. Uh, all the upcoming stuff will be added there. And that's that's the easy way to figure it all out, ryanestrada.com. All right. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on, and hopefully talk to you later. Yeah, and I thank you for having me. This episode of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews is brought to you by Podfaves.com. You love podcasts, but it's hard finding that next bingeable show. Podfaves has taken out the guesswork by easily identifying the best podcasts out there, so you can spend less time searching and more time listening. That's P-O-D-F-A-V-S dot com. And that's our show. For those interested in supporting the show, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. This features minicasts, next episode, and unedited interviews, and I'm working on transcripts of the various shows. We also have an Alexis app offering two-minute minicasts offering writing and business tips, as well as affirmations to keep you writing. We also have curated playlists on YouTube, with all the shows broken down to different playlists based on topic. It also includes a good part of available minicasts, as well as the Alexis briefs. So please support our Patreon page, download the Alexis app, and subscribe to the YouTube channel, and please talk to us on Facebook. Thank you, and have a great day.